Hey, it's the FinTech Newscast. My name's John, and with me is a guy who never loses money when he's trading. Steve, how are you doing? Not at all. I'm 10 for 10, John. I'm betting 1,000. All right. I, I guess you don't have any of that Terra, USD, Luna, anything like that? I, I don't have any of that. Oh, I, I should say that I actually just dipped my, 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 my toe back into, into Bitcoin. I did, buy, I did buy the dip. All right. So we're going to find out in the next year, year or two. Hopefully you're not, uh, this isn't like a day trading kind of thing, but uh, no. we'll find out if you're, uh, well, uh, let, me, let me get the analogy right. Catching a falling knife? Catching or a falling knife. Buying a, a, getting a good deal, buying low and getting ready to sell high. Hmm. We so will see. I'm I'm hoping that, some gloves that, that it's, it's the latter. Yeah, exactly. Well, some some diamond gloves, maybe. Yeah, yeah. We don't we don't learn our lesson. That's our that's our whole point we don't. here. We don't. We don't. But like uh, some people, the the guy who did a uh, Terra USD, the guy uh, what is it, Do Kwan? Oh He's right, the the already, South Korean fella. Yeah, he already has a new coin out already. The new Terra. The so just in era. case, just in case, you know, you're, you're like, well, this guy, I, I think you'll get it right this time. You know, you, you still have an opportunity to jump in. What was it like a, a full three and a half, four weeks? <laughs> yeah, right, right. You're like, well, you know, this guy, he lost 99% of value in this last one. I, I, I think he's good. I think he's, uh, I think he's learned his lesson already in a few weeks. He, he, he may get it right this time. Yeah, why not? I, I don't know if that counts as a financial crime. But we're lucky this week to have a, a real expert on financial crime. We have the global head of solutions at Theta Ray, Sean Smith Taylor. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I, I kind of feel as if I should kind of self-declare my own cryptocurrency assets, but I'm not going to, if that's okay. <laughs> but you can give us your quick take on uh, any of this Luna, Terra stuff that's it's bringing, uh, well, helping to bring down the, the rest of the market. I, I kind of think anything that's got terror in it is not really a good place to start, really, is it? So, um, especially when a financial crime uh, perspective. But uh, maybe, maybe mm. in, in future, like Theta Coin has a little bit of a ring to it, doesn't it? So yeah, maybe that, that kind of works. Maybe Theta could branch out in the years to come. Who knows? I, I like when you say terror. I, I, I thought you were going to say terror. Like terror <laughs> coin. <laughs> So actually, Sean, you mentioned Terra in the context of AML. I know there, there was something in the news a few weeks ago about Terra being used to facilitate money laundering and shady transactions. Um, do you have any insight as to what happened? Any details that you can share with, with our audience? Um, no, no real details apart from what's, I guess, been in the press anyway. And I think when you've got a when you've got something that isn't terribly well controlled from a regulator perspective, Mm -hmm. um and therefore you know financial institutions and exchanges aren't particularly motivated to have very you know ex you know good controls then you get situations that has happened so i think you know any over the adults of time any uh, money movement that hasn't ultimately been or any exchange of services that hasn't been regulated from a financial perspective has always been higher risk um, to actually have financial crime elements in it, so it wasn't not really a surprise, um, but it's a it's a massive shame for I guess these people that actually um, invested uh, not knowing that I guess and lost lots of money. Do you think this problem is endemic to stable coins in general, or more specific to the way that Terra was run? Um, I think there's been examples over even the last five years where the, the, you know they they weren't on their own in terms of you know not having the required control framework. I think, you know, 
any of the the coins that ultimately get backed by a um, a you know a, a stable government, and I'll be quite specific with that statement. Um, I think they will have a, a better chance to actually position themselves in the market to to be a you know a currency of choice um, at a market level going forward. Um, but I don't think we're at that stage at the moment. I know there was talk of a universal coin. There's about 13, 14 banks were working on it, but we haven't got to the critical mass of adoption of, of anything really outside of, I guess, the main two or three uh, currencies. So your your purview is much wider than that. You you cover all kinds of financial crime. What, what, what are the, what's the range? You know, crime's always interesting to hear about. So uh, what, what kind of things uh, do you prevent? Um, quite a lot, actually. So Thedera is a artificial intelligence-based um, financial crime company. We specialize in predominantly transaction monitoring and sanction screening. So again, you know, the, the people that listen to this will have heard over the last decade or two that you know banks get fined for sanction screening and transaction monitoring uh, weaknesses. Uh, the major reason is that you know over the last you know 10 to 15 years, the majority of financial institutions haven't leveraged um, artificial intelligence within within their compliance frameworks. That is now changing, thankfully. Um, but in terms of the, the different types of financial crime, it's very broad. So you could have, for example, a you know child trafficking, for example, came up with one of our clients uh, recently. Um, whereas, you know, when you're looking from a child trafficking from a dynamic perspective of, um, of, of a typology, you're really looking for lots of very small payments um, and within a large data set. And I think when you are relying on rule systems, which is what a lot of the financial institutions have used previously, um, you can be the cleverest person in the room, right? Um, and you can think you know every single risk as a, as a human, but you only know the risks that you're aware of. So the human bias in a lot of the processes today is, is the main problem. Um, and the only way to actually remove that is to go to artificial intelligence, because when you're actually plugging data models, when you're looking at algorithms, the algorithms don't have any preconception of what risk is. Um, so as long as all of the, the common standard industry risk typologies are entered into the models, which of course they are, um, then you have a much, much better, um, better um, chance of actually uncovering the financial crime. And we've got many examples over many different types of clients where they're now in a much better position through implementing Federate than they were before. Oh, got it. What's an, an example of uh, how AI makes the detecting better, like something you couldn't do with you know, any amount of humans? That's a really good question. And let, I actually, I was, I was talking to one of my colleagues earlier and they, they, they came up with a really good analogy. And they were basically saying that, you know, in the current geopolitical situation with Russia and the Ukraine, um, lots of people from other countries are sending money into the Ukraine to, to, to help, uh, you know, fa family members they may have, right, um, that are not having the best time. Um, now, those, those individuals, you know, family members will often put a reference um, within the transaction. And that reference could be, for example, something that's not very um, nice towards Vladimir Putin or towards Russia. So they could say a naughty word, right? And either his name or, or the country. Now, if you have a traditional rule system, it's fairly dumb, it's fairly rigid, and it looks out for trigger words. 
So therefore, it will pick up every single payment that is, you know, going to to the Ukraine from a family member if it has the word Russia or Putin in it. Now, that's not entirely helpful um, when, you know, that money needs to get there quickly to make a difference to people's lives at the moment. So rule systems are fundamentally, you know, rigid, not very clever applications of technology. Whereas what artificial intelligence does is, again, it doesn't have to rely on, you know, thresholds or rules. It will actually look at a large data set and it will understand what is normal activity within that data set. And for example, if you know there's been a massive influx of payments that have gone into the Ukraine since the trouble started, and that's great because that gets support to the people that need it. Um, but that then is not abnormal in terms of a flow. It's now a normal flow. So through artificial intelligence, you'll look at a large data set and, and as long as the activity isn't like the 0.1% as an outlier, um, it won't be it won't be identified because it would define it as normality. Um, and that's the real power of artificial intelligence. You're looking for the basically anomalies within the data rather than setting really dumb rules to stop a lot of the payments. And you know, when you stop a payment in a normal world, then the person getting it, it it's delayed, right? So there's friction in the process. It costs people money because compliance teams have to review it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but actually today there's a real life impact. And the real life impact is that, you know, people that need the money aren't getting it. And there's kind of a speed of execution. Can it really run by itself? Or does this end up being a partnership between the human and the system constantly tweaking? Where, like in this example, you're saying, well, actually this this particular thing is now normal because the world has changed or some behavior has changed. So then you 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 kind of have to tell the the model that this this is now the new normal that stop kicking these out or or can it really run by itself? It can run by itself. So you could you could give our algorithms um, the whole of the last year's. Fedwire transactions for all the US banks, just as an example. And you could give it no clue as to what the, the, the types of business, the sectors that are being served are. And what it would do is it would profile itself. So it would profile um, you know, where the transactions are going, what the amounts are, what the frequency of payments between people are, and it would define what is normal activity from the data it sees. Now, to make it uh to give it like a head start or an acceleration then you can actually build models into it and predefine them so you can then give it information in terms of these are the common risk typologies these are the sectors within the data and you can give it more information on the customers so any information you put into the model just makes the model more effective but even if there's actually no information in the model the algorithms themselves so our algorithms were built by two very very well-renowned uh, maths professors and they were built for many, many different use cases. But the premise behind it at a high level was give the, the algorithms loads of data and it will profile for you within that data what is normal activity. So it can work as a mostly unsupervised model where it'll figure it out. And, and, but when there's a change in, in behavior, it won't start kicking those out as some kind of a, something unusual or it'll, it'll wait to determine that this is a new pattern. No, it, it will identify it. So again, if, you know, if we've had 100, well, if we had 99 transactions, then they all conform to a specific profile. And, you know, the algorithms understand that they conform to that profile. 
if there's a change in the behavior, so let's say there's a new risk typology, it's going to be a different behavior to what it's already seen. So by definition, it's a, it will be come out as an anomaly. So therefore, and what you said about unsupervised is absolutely perfect because what Federer actually specialize in is machine learning, but there's two different types of machine learning. You have unsupervised, which is the anomalies, and you have semi-supervised, which is basically automation of specific actions and results. So it's it's exactly what you said. The unsupervised machine learning is where the real power is. Oh, got it. Uh, this sounds pretty sophisticated. It, it, are, are there developments you'd like to see in AI or or the like the power of the machines or or improvements at, of algorithms that are just not possible yet? What, what are the, some, of, some of the cutting edge things that would help with what you guys do? I mean, outside of the technology perspective, so I think, you know, from a, we're always improving our algorithms. The, we, we've created, the reason that we've got a highly patented solution is our professors have actually created certain types of algorithms that didn't exist before. So we will always be pushing the boundaries of what's there. I think one of the, especially from a financial crime perspective, one of the areas that has started improving, um, but isn't really, you know, it still has a long way to go, is the the regulators themselves. So we're actually very fortunate. We have two regulators that are actually our customers as well. So our customers are large uh, retail correspondent banks. And also we have a large number of fintechs as well. So we have, you know, the Santander's loads, loads of really large banks. And then we have um, a lot of fintechs, um, Payoneer being a really, really good example. And there's a, there was a video that was launched this morning where their chief compliance officer tells the world why he chose Thetera. It's a wonderful, a wonderful video. Um, but I think where it, we could be a little bit more helpful is that regulators over the last 10 years, if you go back, say, five to 10 years ago, they were they were a bit cautious about AI and they weren't sure whether, you know, could you prove that it's not a black box where you're not really sure what happens um, or is it a white box and it's fully explainable? And I think that's been a development that's really good. That's been a development of understanding within the regulators themselves. But I think that's an area where actually there the really should be a, a really good focus in terms of, you know, rule systems don't work. The regulators now know it. They're coming out openly and saying it, but I think they need to start enforcing it on the institutions they supervise. Um, and I think they need to do it a bit quicker than they are. Yeah, I've seen a lot of uh, press on explainable AI and how that transparency is so important for especially regulated uh, entities, but for, for anyone. Uh, but are there, on the other side, how sophisticated is the criminal element? I, I keep seeing how there's so much power behind um, uh, hacking efforts. Uh, how much do they know the rules and can evade them? Or is it that uh, we know who they are, but they're just hard to find and, and get to in some cases? So, I mean, rule systems themselves aren't terribly difficult to circumvent because rule systems are designed by very, very clever people. But again, they're designed are based on uh, knowledge that those clever people have about risk. Um, criminals generally in most walks of life are usually a step ahead. Um, and it's not difficult for um, you know, a scheme to set something up that will evade rules. Um, now, of course, these very, very clever people in the banks will hear about such schemes and then they will put in a rule that stops it. Uh, all that that happens then is the criminals change their behavior um, or, or start a new scheme that people aren't aware of. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I think you know, there's there's lots of uh, criminality that happens on such a scale, um, and those uh, schemes recruit very clever people themselves uh, to ensure that they can actually uh, continue to evade what are legacy systems, and that's why. You know, the, the video I was talking about from the, the Pioneer Chief Compliance Officer, he clearly states in the video that, you know, during the pandemic, if you think of COVID loan fraud, you know, that was a huge, huge area of concern. Um, and he openly admitted with the current threshold rule system he had, um, it wasn't where he wanted it to be from a control perspective. Um, he reviewed all of the AI providers in the market and chose Thedere, and he chose Thedere because of our results. So I think that's, you know, Criminality is always going to be, is always going to be there, um, but to minimise the risk and to actually get ahead of it, you have to use the latest technology. Um, speaking of criminality, um, I'm assuming that, that, that there was also um, a, a big effort to get laundered money out of Russia as soon as sanctions um, uh, were tightened on on the uh, on on the elite there. Um, what have you seen in terms of outflows of, of money coming out of Russia and also their efforts to evade sanctions or to basically bypass the the system? Yeah, so I, I think it, it's really interesting that the control that was put in place was to sanction loads of people. So when you sanction loads of people, it by the way, it's I think it's a good control in certain ways, but it's incredibly poor in other ways. So if you sanction Vladimir Putin, all it really means is that he can't operate account within his name. Now, you then go into adverse media and you sanction loads of other people that he knows, but you can't sanction everybody he knows. But when you sanction an individual, what you're doing is you're stopping them controlling or operating an account in their name. Um, what sanctions didn't really look at is... You know, if somebody wants to get their money out of Russia, they just won't use the names that are sanctioned. And, you know, Russia itself has a um, kind of a, it's had a bilateral uh, payment scheme with China for years. Um, China is still accepting money from Russia. And actually the, the volume through that scheme spiked as soon as sanctions came in. So sanctions keep the Western world um, quite happy, I think in terms of, you know, we've sanctioned them, they can't operate their own accounts. I mean, two things will happen. A, they'll use other countries they have relationships with to get the money out. But then also they'll use different means than, other their, own, than their own accounts. And that's where transaction monitoring is a far more powerful tool than sanction screening, because sanction screening is just, is this bad person on a list sending payments through a bank? Whereas transaction monitoring will look at, is there a change in behavior within a specific customer base. And during, once the sanctions were implemented, there were changes within customer bases. Um, you know, people that were having say one transaction a year were then getting dozens. That's a change in the behavior, right? So sanctions alone is not a, uh, is not a sophisticated enough tool um, to manage the risk that we have in the, the obviously the Russia-Ukraine situation. That's where transaction monitoring is actually more important um, because criminals and people that are sanctioned will do anything to get the money out of a specific country. Um, and the only way to actually identify that is through transaction monitoring. Speaking of, of getting money out of uh, out of the country, um, I know that London is a prime target for 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 these kind of activities. Um, what I, I recall that there were rules that were implemented 
um, at the beginning of the war to basically tighten that and make scrutiny, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, tighter in the UK. So what effects, uh, if any, has that had on money flows into London specifically? And uh, can you think of any transaction monitoring activities that have actually re resulted in some sort of action against an oligarch or somebody who's aligned with the Russian regime? I think in terms of examples, it's probably too early for, for, for any of them to have been published. I think what um, what London did well is there was a lot of property, ultimately, and a lot of assets um, that had been invested with people that were, you know, had a Russian background, that were sanctioned. Um, so the asset freezing force in the UK, um, you know, basically impounded lots of yachts. They, they took uh, control of houses. Um, I think the only... I think the only challenge with the implementation of those sanctions was every country, the US, the UK were the same. They would sanction somebody, but then they would say that they can operate for, they did this with the banks as well. We'll sanction you today, but you're still allowed to operate for like 10 days or 12 days. That was something that was quite common at the start of the conflict. Um, and that was done probably for, I guess, economic reasons rather than um, enforcement reasons. But that gave them the opportunity for money to move out. But once that deadline was passed, that's when you saw the seizures uh, globally of, you know, the, the ones that were always in the press were about yachts, right? Because everybody loves sure. to see a super yacht docked. <laughs> of course. Um, but there's loads of properties, you know. Russia's economy has generated a lot of wealth over the last few decades, and that wealth was reinvested outside of Russia. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of asset um, freezings. I think there'll be, there'll be certain schemes that come to light over the next few months, because, you know, it, it, even though it seems that this conflict has been going on for, for years, it has only still been a few months, and it's been a horrendous few months, but it has only been a few months. So I think you'll start seeing um, different kind of mini typologies that um, come to light as a result of some of the investigations that are, are probably still ongoing. Yeah, I have to be careful with my yacht. I have to put it you under uh, some, some separate trusts, make sure the beneficial owners are unrelated to me. At least, obviously. Just uh, make sure which, whoever you bank with doesn't have Thetra as a uh, as a compliance vendor. Oh man. Okay. We'll let you get that add in also. <laughs> sure. So you guys must constantly have to keep aware of new schemes, new ideas. Uh, any in, uh, on the criminal side? Any interesting anecdotes you can share about something especially clever or uh, or even you know kind of kind of not very smart way that uh, you're, you're surprised people would even try? Well, I think one thing is, yes, we do spend a lot of time understanding, you know, what schemes are out there, what typologies there are. We, we have quite a few people within the company that have law enforcement background um, and intelligence background, um, which, is, which is super, super helpful because they're really, really clever people. I think one of the, one of the examples which I think it's crazy and they'll probably make a film out of it at some point but oh, this sounds good yeah it, it, films do sound good right so we'll have to work out who the actors are going to be at some point but um the and actresses but the the danske bank scandal that happened a few years ago one of my colleagues calls it a hollywood example of criminality but it was basically where a a branch of danske bank i think it was in estonia um in a very, very small village in Estonia. So it's like a little branch, um, you know, that maybe there's maybe 2,000 inhabitants of the, of, the, of the village. But that branch of the, of the Danske Bank in that village actually had more funds flowing through it than the entirety of the GDP of Estonia. Whoa. 
no red flag exactly right so that's one that's one funny thing and you know had think about it as a as, as a rule right so now now people are aware of that i guarantee there are banks that are now setting thresholds to make sure it doesn't happen in future so that that's good but it's bad because danske bank happened and loads of money was laundered like billions was laundered there's another one and there's one in the uk where um <laughs> There was basically a, a a jewelry business in the in a, a northern town in the UK, and when they were onboarded to a bank, they kind of said, you know, what's your annual turnover? And they were like, you know, it's like fifty thousand, fifty thousand sterling a year. During like the first three years of operation, um, that um, jewelry business deposited like seven million in cash in about twenty branches in the area. And people were they were in. just doing really well. They it were just doing quite well, well right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they were coming up with like bag loads, bin bags, loads of cash, right? So these are examples where, you know, unless the risk has been understood by, let's say, the clever people that are entering the thresholds, those things will continue to happen. Whereas, again, if you have a profile of a customer that says that they're going to be uh, depositing, you know, let's say 50,000 in a year, and actually it's magnitudes above it, that's an anomaly within a data set and artificial intelligence will identify it. Well, that's relatively easy. Well, I should say pretty pretty easy to see that it's uh, way out of the profile. Any, uh, any criminal activity that you kind of respect, you're like, wow, they really have some powerful AI on their side. Or, or we've seen how the, uh, there was a case where it was a, there was a deep fake of uh, uh, an executive's voice ordering a wire. And then the second time they tried it, it got stopped. It seems pretty interesting and something that that was not possible just a few years ago. Yeah, so I think you, you're talking about CEO fraud, right? So I think that that has, that has long been a risk typology, but I think it's the channels of communication now. So like you were saying, the deep fake or going via WhatsApp or masking emails in a better way. Like, you know, criminals are, will have very, very clever people working for them that will be trying to find an edge. Um, and that edge could be timing, it could be technology, it could be anything. Um, but these, you know, criminality will continue to happen. I think what, and if we're talking about financial crime, what institutions need to do is give themselves the best chance. So I, I heard... I had an example a few days ago, and it was a it was a um, it was a product manager in healthcare, and he basically said he's like I'm a product manager. The products that I um, that I create will kill somebody. What I need to do is ensure that I have mitigated the risk as much as possible, so my conscience is clear. And I think when you are battling criminality. No provider can say that they will reduce criminality to zero. It's like no fraud company that can say with a, with, with a straight face anyway, um, that they can reduce the fraud levels to zero. It's, that's, they're just lies. But what people need to do and financial institutions need to do is utilize the right technology to give themselves um, effectively a clean conscience um, to be able to assure themselves that their compliance framework is the best it can be. 
So you go back to to the the tech piece, and I have um, friends who still work in in banking in New York uh, as a MLKYC analyst. Are their careers doomed? Um, will they basically be automated out of a job in the next ten to fifteen years, or even sooner than that? No, not at all. So I think what artificial intelligence allows you to do is redeploy people into more um, investigating roles. So if you are an analyst that is sitting at a bank that uses a rule system, you are looking at hundreds of alerts a day. And the vast majority, you you make a decision that it's a waste of your time. It's it's not an alert within maybe 30 seconds to one minute. That, that's, that's the life. I used to do this many years ago. So I, I, I know these systems, I've used them. Whereas what will happen, there will be a, a read, and this is something that you know institutions need to start planning for, there's going to be a, a change in the workforce dynamic. So rather than having to review 500 cases a day very, very quickly, they will be looking at actually the serious um, alerts that do need more resource. So rather than reviewing 500, you'll be reviewing like five or 10, but there'll be actual proper investigations where you need to build a case, you need to use different systems um, and you know, are more challenging, quite frankly, and a lot more enjoyable for an analyst to do. Um, we speak to lots of analysts. We speak to analysts at uh, you know, institutions that have adopted our tool and some that haven't. Um, and they'll tell you the same thing. You know, nobody wants to be bored in the role that they're doing, but I guarantee you, if you are reviewing hundreds and hundreds of items on a daily basis, it's not going to be the most enjoyable of jobs. And fundamentally, it's more prone to error. A lot of SARS that aren't reported by financial institutions is because of uh, personnel errors. Um, and then they're not making errors because they don't know what they're doing. They're making errors because it's, a lot of it is quite a mundane process when you're looking at rules systems. So where's the market uh, leading you today? What kind of clients are you getting the most interest from? A, a lot of uh, fintechs or certain kinds of fintechs or, or other kind of businesses? It, it's definitely evolved. So if you go back two or three years ago, it was the really large correspondent banks and they were getting pushed by the regulator in certain jurisdictions um, to adopt better technology. They'd been fined by regulators. They realized that the rule systems they were using were, were you know, they were entirely to people. Um, so started really there and we got a, you know, a significant number of large banks. But then over the last probably 18 months, um, whilst, you know, the, the banks are still going to be a very important part of our future, um, we've onboarded a significant amount of fintechs. And I think that's primarily because A, fintechs are used to um, the latest technology. A lot of fintechs will have been, you know, created in the last five to 10 years. Um, and they, you know, they will use AI in their own processes. Um, so I think that's one area in terms of where we're going. You know, we've got use cases in many different areas. You know, we have use cases in trade finance. We have it in capital markets. Um, we're looking, we've done projects in crypto. Um, so we spoke about crypto a little bit at the start. Um, so we obviously f- uh, facilitate the analysis of crypto transactions that are the um, fiat element within the, the banking transactions today, but we've done projects within, uh, I guess, the, the, the non-fiat side. Um, and I think that's an area that we're seeing a lot of interest and we will our, our solution will be perfect um, for, for, for that area. So I think that'll be a huge growth market for us. And I think you're also seeing lots of embedded finance companies You've got companies like um, Uber, um, you've got companies like Amazon, where payments is now becoming, when, when they first started, they outsourced all of their payments um, business to, to, to banks, right? 
Uh, whereas it became such a cost base that they've set up their own accounts, they've set up their own um, their own processes, their own controls, and they're now looking very seriously um, at the compliance frameworks they now need, need to have in place. So I think that will also be another area of growth. What advice would you give to uh, fintechs out there uh, besides uh, hiring ThetaRay? I guess their their security, how they operate. Uh, would would there or are there some common things that you see out there that you, you wish people knew? ahead of time? Um, well, I think your first comment was absolutely correct. So just use that array. But if I look <laughs> at a, if I look at a market perspective, um, I think, you know, the, the fintechs themselves will have very clever technologists. So I would say empower your technologists and your product team to go and review who are the best in class within AML. And best in class within AML are not rule systems. So they will come up with a list of AI companies. Um, Once they come up with that list, what I would suggest they do is they remove the marketing message on websites. So a lot of of companies that say that they can do um, artificial intelligence within AML can't. um, So test them would be, you know, would be my, uh, would be my, would be my advice and then also look at you know who are the their um who are the providers actually live with today so you know there's no there's no unsupervised machine learning company that has the customers that are live that Thedera has so you know get the proof points get references um and then also look at how quickly they can deploy so i think speed of execution is super important because if they can <clears throat> deploy quickly and to a high level then that's really the optimal type of relationship that you need. Um, And also start talking to your regulators more as well. So that's what I would say. So regulators are now getting a lot more, um, a a lot more forthright within their views around new technology. So, you know, don't, don't take no action because if you take no action, you are highly likely to be fined in future if you stay on a legacy rule system. Um, So do your research, um, understand what looks good, and then go ahead with it would be my advice. Yeah, great, great. Some some good advice. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. All, all the best to you guys, stopping those criminals and doing it at a lot more places uh, using that smart uh, system you guys have. Uh, that's Sean Smith-Taylor, the Global Head of Solutions at ThetaRay. Please hit subscribe to keep up with the latest in fintech news. And thank you for listening.